I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, everyone, and welcome to Quit Your Day Job. I am Alicia Fernandez-Miranda. Am I wearing sweatpants while I record this? You will never know. This podcast is all about dream jobs, the ones you wished you had when you were a kid and the ones you pin up on your vision board. I decided to chase after my dream jobs in 2020 by taking unpaid internships at four of them. I quit my job as CEO of a philanthropy consulting business to try my hand working on Broadway, in fitness, as an art dealer, and at a hotel. And then I wrote a book about my experience, which will be out in 2023. I am psyched to share my story with you, but in the meantime, I'm bringing you a few others, real people who work really cool jobs. So before you quit your day job to go be a painter or an actress or a life coach, listen in and see what it's really like behind the scenes. Hey, 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 and welcome to Quit Your Day Job. Today, I am super excited to have Dr. Molly Taylor. Doctor, because if you do a PhD, hell yes, you better be using doctor. Molly is an associate director and head of research at Dickinson Gallery, a specialist dealership in old masters through contemporary art that's based in London in New York. Molly is based in London, and she focuses on old masters through her work. She has worked at major international auction house and studied art history at Harvard, like me, but way, way, way better, at the Courtauld Institute of Art and Maudlin College, Cambridge, which I always pronounce Magdalene, but managed to get it right this time on my second take. Molly, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Molly is still technically on maternity leave. She has a brand new little baby girl who is absolutely precious. And so I am extra grateful that you have taken this nap time (laughs) to come and join us today to talk about work. Oh, well, thanks so much. It's really fun. It's the first time I've had an adult conversation with someone other than my husband in quite some time. So, Oh, good. I'll, I'll try to keep it as adult as possible then. And I'm super impressed because when the twins were little, I don't even think I could put a coherent sentence together until the age of, I don't know, how old are they now? 10? So maybe soon I'll be able to do that. <laughs> I've yet to see whether I can. So you can look at the Oh, the well, this is your true test. Okay, well, just to make things Even more tricky for you, Molly. I like to start these out with a little bit of a lightning round. So five quick questions. Say the first thing that comes to your head, just a chance to get to know you a little bit more. So are you ready for your lightning round? Yes. That's (sighs) Deep breaths. Okay. Question one. What is your favorite museum or gallery besides your own? Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Oh, that's one of my favorites too. I spent a lot of time there when we were in college and just thought it was so weird and wonderful. And what's the story there, Molly? Is it that they, they're not allowed to move anything? Is that just like no. an urban legend or is that real? It, it is one of the stipulations of Isabella Stewart Gardner's bequest to the city that they're not allowed to 
the accession sell any paintings. Obviously, they made an exception when several were stolen in, in the big heist in the 90s. But otherwise, no, nothing has ever, ever moved or loaned out or changed. So I think when I was there, there was still an empty frame where maybe it was a Rembrandt was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, they have to keep the empty frames on the wall. So it's it's a bit haunting and, and quite sad to see that they used to be there and, and no one has found them since. That is a beautiful museum and definitely off the beaten path for most people. I love that. Okay, number two, you're at an opening. Are you having champagne, wine, a mocktail, or all of the above? <laughs> I would say probably all of the above. Um, <laughs> definitely champagne is one of the, the nice treats for not being pregnant anymore. But if there's wine on offer, that's not bad either. Yeah, you could have, you have two hands for a reason. So I think. <laughs> oh, amazing. Okay. What is your personal form of artistic expression? What do you do that's artistic? Ooh, I sketch in watercolors and play the harp. Neither especially well, just well enough to appreciate people who can do it really well, but it's sort of very 18th century of me, I think. That's so awesome. That's like straight out of a Jane Austen novel. I love that. <laughs> Even um, the mediocrity of the, the doing is... <laughs> I bet you're better. I bet you're better than you think. Okay, question four. What's the fairest art fair of them all? Oh, gosh. I love the Biennale in Florence, which is one we exhibit at in October, largely because it's an art fair in Florence. So, you know, it's it's pretty special. Oh, amazing. When was the last time you went to an actual physical in-person art fair? <laughs> the last one Dickinson exhibited at was Freeze Masters in London in October, but I was about two days away from having Margot, so I didn't attend myself. Um, the last <laughs> I went to the person was Tefaf Maastricht in the Netherlands in March 2020. Ooh. I went early for a particular reason, and all of us came home with a nice souvenir cold <laughs> that uh, we realized later on what it was. But yes, that is the last art fair I've been to in person. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And are you, are you going back once you're done with your maternity leave? Are you looking forward to that? I really am. I love art fairs. It's an opportunity to see friends from all around the world, clients, other dealers, museum curators. It's fun to travel if you're going somewhere that's that's away from your home city. But some of the ones in London are some of the nicest, like Masterpiece in the Summer. I mean, it's London in June. It's, it's Wimbledon is on and the fair is on and the auctions are on. And it's just a really nice time to be in London. So yeah, I love an art fair. Amazing. It seems very glamorous. I want to hear more when we finish <laughs> with the final Lightning round question, which is Leonardo, Raphael, Donatello, or Michelangelo? And you may choose (laughs) artists or Ninja Turtles for your answer. Oh, gosh, that's a very difficult choice. I think I'd have to say Leonardo for the drawings, Mm. the works on I actually had to Google if Donatello was a real artist, and he was a sculptor. (laughs) But I I knew the other three, so... (laughs) <laughs> There's my art history minor coming in uh, really handy. All right. Well, you passed the lightning round. Congratulations. With flying colors and coherent sentences. So let's get into learning a little bit about your job. I think working for an art gallery in an art gallery is it's like very sex in the city, but not the new version, the old good version. It yes. just feels like this very glamorous job. So can you start out by telling us what do you actually do? So my particular job, I'm head of research at the gallery. So, you know, you get pictures in to sell or sculptures or or works on paper. You have to know what they are in order to effectively sell them and know who to sell them to, what 
price to put on them. So I'm the one who oversees all of the catalogs and the fact sheets that we write for all the pictures that come into the gallery. So that means working with museum curators and other experts. If I need opinions on things, it means working with conservators sometimes. It means lots of time doing research, whether that's online or at the library. So a lot of the same skills that, that we used as undergraduates or in grad school, put to good use to put together these catalogs in order to sell the paintings. And then I also represent the gallery at the art fairs, which means standing on the booth, you know, waiting for someone to come up and ask me a question that I hopefully know the answer to, um, <laughs> to talk about these things that I've spent so much time with. It, it feels very glamorous, I think. Yeah. I know it's not all glamorous, but would you describe yeah. your job as glamorous? I think there are a lot of very glamorous aspects, and that's certainly what everyone sees. I mean, if you if you go to one of these art fairs, they've done it to appeal to the people who are spending huge amounts of money on art. So everything is very, you know, swish. Oh, they've gotten everything designed beautifully. They have, you know, champagne passed around. Restaurants have little outposts in the fairs. They've got, you know, these booths set up with beautiful things that you can look at that you can buy. It's a fun occasion to get dressed up. I always get to pull out, you know, my, my favorite outfits, um, the ones not covered in baby vomit, hopefully, <laughs> to you know, sort of participate in this whole experience, this very glamorous experience, whether people are coming just to look or they actually want to buy something. Right. You know, there's also a lot of travel involved and, you know, Sometimes you're you're going on EasyJet and sometimes you're going in someone's private jet. So there's there's a wide range. And I think we do tend to hide the less glamorous aspects of the job, which are also some of the most interesting. That's my dog in the background. Hi, Pop. So, you know, putting together the, the hang at the art fair, it doesn't just magically appear. That's, that's us coming in in our jeans and our sneakers before the thing opens and, and hammering nails into the wall and getting up on a ladder and, and you know, painting and... Let me just stop her. <laughs> I mean, I'm kind of enjoying the background noise. The 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 episode I filmed before you was Kedge Martin, who's a life coach, and she was sitting outside in Mallorca. And so there was like an owl, a really loud owl in the background. <laughs> so maybe this is quit your day job with animals. Well, good guard dog. And also wants to make sure you don't forget to tell us about all the not glamorous parts of your job. Yeah. So, you know, it is it is a mix of, of both. There's a lot of graft and, and lifting and hanging and boxing and unboxing things and schlepping stuff around that goes into putting on this really sort of slick facade, which is what people see. Now you went into, you studied art history and then you went into it as a career. Did you always know that that was what you wanted to do even when you were a kid? When I was really little, I think I wanted to be a fairy princess ballerina mermaid. Excellent. After that, it was probably an artist for most of my youth. And then at some point in high school, I realized it probably wasn't going to be, you know, sort of creative enough to, to do this as a career. And I took an AP art history class my senior year in high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And it was a small class. And every Friday we'd go to a museum or a private collection to look at so cool firsthand. It was an amazing class. And so as soon as I realized that art history was something that you could study, I thought, well, perfect. All right, I'll do that. So I knew as soon as I got to to Harvard, that that was what I wanted to study. I didn't really put much thought into what to do with art history. It wasn't right. perhaps <laughs> a practical decision, but I was lucky enough to land a couple internships. I did one at Sotheby's in New York. I did one with a gallery 
called Herschel and Adler that specializes in American and European paintings. So I realized, okay, here's a practical application. I can work with the art that I love, but there's also this really fun social aspect that I, I enjoyed that maybe is a bit livelier than you might get in an academic career or teaching or something right. like that. And all the champagne, wine, and mocktails that you are drinking when you're at all of these events. I love that. So tell us a little bit about an average day, maybe before you went on maternity leave, maybe yeah. maybe before the pandemic, COVID. which I'm sure has changed a lot. So maybe average is the worst possible word to use. Tell us about a day, a day in your job. <laughs> yeah, back in the day. I mean, you know, when we're, when we're not traveling, when I'm just at the gallery in London. We're based in Mayfair in German Street. There's a big gallery space. It's an area where you have a lot of dealers. You've got Christie Sotheby's and Bonhams. It's a very sort of art-centric area around Green Park in London. So we have our offices there. We have the gallery spaces on the ground floor where we welcome people in to view exhibitions. And then on the upper floors are the offices and more private and discreet viewing rooms for people who, who want to look at things with more privacy. So we we have a meeting, a team meeting with the London staff on Monday morning where we'll discuss what's coming up, maybe art fairs to prepare for, new works coming in, things in the process of being sold. I will spend a lot of time looking at the artworks myself and with colleagues. It's, it's a real privilege to be able to look at these things up close. So taking them out of their frames, turning them over, studying the labels on the back, trying wow. to figure out the whole history of a piece. Because when we present it, we're looking not just at what it is, but also where it's been over the course of its life. And then once I know what my research assignments are, then maybe I'll go to the library. Maybe if it's raining, I'll send my intern to the library. <laughs> there are all sorts of options. And I'll spend a lot of time writing for our catalogs, but also writing things like press releases or writing things like insights for our website. A lot of the texts that we have at the gallery are, are things that I write. Ooh. Yeah. We do it a newsletter once a month, for instance, and we have to put that together. We have to do a lot on social media, obviously, because that's right. a real to, to reach an audience. So we'll be writing Instagram posts, for instance. Then I will often take time to go to an exhibition there are so many things on. I'm, I'm itching to get back to London from Wiltshire right now because there's this Durer exhibition on at the National Gallery. There's a Van Gogh exhibition on at the Courtauld. And you really have to be in the know about what else is out there, whether that's, you know, so you can compare something you have for sale to examples by the same artist in museum exhibitions or whether it means going to an auction view to figure out what's coming up, being sold at, at maybe Christie's or Sotheby's or Bonham's right. so that, that you know what else is in the market. Sometimes you'll take a client out for lunch, which is nice. Most of the time you'll eat a sandwich at your desk, which is fine. <laughs> and then after work, often there will be some sort of an evening event, whether that's a, a museum opening or something at, at one of the auction houses. And certainly if you're exhibiting at a fair, you're out pretty much every single night trying to see as many people as you can while everyone is in the same place. And then go home and... and Do it all just- over again the next day. <laughs> That sounds amazing. And I, I didn't really realize you wrote so much. Now, do you have a specialty? Do you focus on old masters or a particular century or a particular type of art? Yeah. So most of my training is in 
old masters. So everything from Renaissance through sort of 18th century. But Dickinson handles everything up to post-war and contemporary art. So I write about things that that maybe are outside of my area of expertise, but having learned how to research, you can apply those skills to different areas. Right. And I also have the opportunity to work with great experts in other fields. So for instance, if I'm writing a brochure on early Picasso, I'll email Marilyn McCulley, who's the, the expert on early Picasso and, and ask questions and ask for help. And so it's so in cool. a way like a, like a master course in different areas. I love it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now, uh, something I get asked a lot when people hear that I have anything to do with the art world, which is, I still feel like an intern, even though I have yeah. an <laughs> actual, actual title... <laughs> In my work that I'm doing with Harry Blaine, who I interned for, and and yeah. some of the businesses that he does. But the question I get asked all the time, especially about contemporary art, is what makes art art? And there was a great book that came out a few years ago called Why Your Five-Year-Old Could Not Have Done That, because yeah. that is the thing that people really love to throw. How on earth is this art? How do you answer that question? I'm sure you get it as well. Yeah, it's it's a difficult question. And, and I mean, in a way, for an old master's, Specialist. A lot of the time I am sort of on that side going into it most recently with NFTs, which everyone's been talking about in the business. And, and again, you know, for someone who's used to looking at Raphael's, it's sort of head scratching to try to figure <laughs> out what's going on. But, you know, art, art is about sort of evoking a reaction and, and maybe that reaction isn't, oh my God, I love that. Maybe that reaction is, I don't understand it. This makes me uncomfortable or, you know, why is this art? But it, it does make people think. So I just find myself stretching beyond what I might like to have on my walls and being able to appreciate things that are provocative or confusing or strange or surprising because they do evoke this response in people. Right. I mean, that's, I think that's very similar. I think it, I say a similar thing in that it art should make you feel something and that thing doesn't yeah. have to be what you think you should feel. And I, I yeah. think the same thing about, you know, be, before I, definitely before I studied art in undergrad, you know, I did not grow up in a family that consumed a lot of art. We went once to the Louvre on a family trip when I was 21 and my dad, we all walked in together. My dad looked at his watch and he said, so what do you need? 15 minutes? Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, oh. What? 
<laughs> so we negotiated 45. I literally ran through. I was so glad I had sneakers on. I jogged through in like an hour. And when I got back, my dad was drinking coffee at the shop. And he was like, what took you so long? We've, oh already, we've already seen everything in here. So that's just a little bit of context. But I think that I found galleries, especially not so much museums, but galleries, definitely quite intimidating spaces and spaces totally. that didn't feel like they were necessarily made for me. Do you think that that's something that's changing? Do you think it's always going to be like that? I mean, I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, I absolutely can see that. I I feel the same way if I'm going into, you know, a Chanel store or something. And I feel like everyone's looking at me like, you can buy something? <laughs> I totally know the exact feeling that you're talking about. And I appreciate that galleries, a lot of the time for security reasons, same as for high-end shops or, or jewelry stores, you do have to buzz to get in. They have these enormous doors. It's right. not tight to keep people out. It's for reasons of you know, keeping art in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you let anybody wander in and out, you'd be a huge insurance liability. So it is very intimidating that you have to ring a bell and and you know someone will come call down on the intercom, first floor, please, you have to push open this heavy door. I think sometimes it's easier if you have a window on to the street so that people can sort of look in and someone friendly at the desk can wave at you. And, and a lot of galleries are structured like that. It's a, a great sort of an advertising opportunity to have right. a shop. We don't because Dickinson is a private treaty sales specialist, which means that we don't actually own most of the artworks that we have for sale. We're selling them on behalf of private individuals. And one of the big sort of selling points for working with a company like Dickinson is discretion. So we can't advertise broadly a lot of the things that we handle. We do have to keep them quite secret. So we can't have them visible to everyone because we're meant to be handling these discrete sales. So that's the reason our setup is the way it is. It's not to try to be deliberately intimidating, but I absolutely appreciate that art galleries in general can be very intimidating. Yeah. And I always say to people, just go. I said, you're not going to get pretty womaned. Or if you do get pretty womaned, (laughs) you know, who cares? Because if they've gotten open, you know, and if they're open or, you know, now a lot of galleries are doing time tickets and different COVID COVID features and things like that, but it's often free and you can just see absolutely amazing work. And so I would love to encourage people to get over that fear because I think once you do, it can be amazing. And for what it's worth, we're all trained not to judge people on the basis of appearances because while some of the world's billionaires like to to wander around wearing Laura Piana looking the part, there are certain individuals who I I certainly won't name, but anyone in the business will know who I'm talking about, (laughs) who walk around you know, in, in cargo shorts and a t-shirt looking like a dad at a barbecue. Amazing. Like <laughs> so you can't judge people because it's not a way to, to predict who's going to be able to buy something. You really need to be friendly to everyone. Very sensible and good a good approach, I think. I want to talk about pricing works, which was something I found unbelievably fascinating. Is that part of your job? Do you get involved in suggesting a price for a work that might come in? Yeah, we do. So it's always, you know, difficult to put a, a price on something that's a unique object because if you think about it, a, a painting doesn't really have intrinsic value. It's a you know piece of canvas or or wood with some paint on it. The value is what people in the market are prepared to pay for it. So it's all a bit of speculation, but you if you were trying to put a price on something, 
their databases of works that have been sold in a public forum, like at auction. And so you can look up and you can say, okay, so, you know, last year a work by this particular artist sold for this amount of money, but that one was bigger than ours, but ours is from a better date. And so you would just up and down accordingly and you can arrive at, at a sort of approximate price. Obviously, if, if you're selling works on a consignment basis the way we are, we also have to work with the owners of the piece because we might say, oh, we think that this is a, a reasonable price expectation. They might say, well, I want more than that. And so then you have to, to either, you know, explain to them why it should be set at a certain level or, you know, if, if they want to pitch it ambitiously, then, you know, maybe you have to, to sort of soften the expectations in a different way. There are a lot of factors to consider, but I think looking at market precedent is a really good way to get started. What percentage would you say is science? So based on data and research and previous sales, and what percentage would you say is just art, having a feeling for how much you think something's going to be? <laughs> I mean, the more experience you have, the more you can arrive at a pretty accurate, you know, sort of a, a price gauge before you do all the research. I mean, my colleagues, the founding directors of our gallery, who are, are gentlemen in their 70s who have been doing this for many decades, you know, you put a painting in front of one of them and, and he'll probably say, I think this is worth about X amount. And I could do the market research and probably arrive at a, a comparable conclusion. Right. The more you do it and the more artworks you see, the more instinctive it becomes. Yeah. And I guess it must be slightly more ring-fenced, or at least you know what universe you're working in with old masters where you have a big body of work that's sold before and things like that, as opposed to like someone taping a banana to a wall and then <laughs> deciding that that's going to be a six-figure sum. <laughs> uh, well, we don't work with primary markets, so that does make it a little bit easier. So we're not, for the most part, representing artists. We're buying or mostly sort of selling, but buying and selling things that have been on the market before. Right. It's actually easier to price, you know, maybe post-war and contemporary works than it is old masters because with old masters, the supply is so limited in a lot of cases that there isn't going to be a lot of market precedent for something. If I if see maybe the last artwork that's comparable was sold 15 years ago. Well, the price that it made 15 years ago is totally irrelevant to the price that it's going to make today. So, you know, you're, you're then going to have to look maybe horizontally at, at another artist of a comparable stature who's working during the same period and say, well, you know, if that fetched this amount, then maybe this would fetch that amount. And it's easier if you can just look up two dozen examples of comparable pictures that have sold within the last year and go, yep, this is where we are right now. Right. And just for anybody who doesn't know, primary market is when you're selling a work directly from an artist, kind of the first time you exactly. do that. Secondary yeah, exactly. is when it's been sold before and then it's moving maybe from a private collector to another private collector or something exactly. like that moving through yeah. the market, which is something I had to learn when I started interning here and not something I knew. <laughs> okay. Have you ever had something come in and it you've looked at it and you thought this is not really who it should be attributed to. Have you ever spotted a fake or a forgery? Oh, I mean, when I used to, to work at Christie's, you'd get people just bringing things in for you know valuations. You, you didn't even have to have an appointment. You could just bring something in, call, call up Sarah's and, and whoever was free would come down and take a look at it. And, and I remember one time somebody brought something in that, you know, turned it over and there was the, the museum gift shop tag on <laughs> 
<laughs> so yes, you know, you do regularly see things that aren't what they're supposed to be, but it, it's more likely with paintings that something will have a history. And so, you know, you'll, you'll have a pretty good idea of what it is before it comes in. Right. Okay. And you probably get to see some amazingly special pieces of work that maybe have never been exhibited publicly. Does anything come to mind as like one of the most special things you've ever gotten a chance to see? Oh gosh. I mean, there, there are just so many wonderful pieces that, that we get to work with. I think it's always especially exciting when something goes to a museum, because then you know that it's going to be enjoyed by generations to come. I'm running over in my brain, what am I allowed to talk about? What am I not allowed to talk about? <laughs> Fair enough. Um, but certainly, I mean, when I, again, when I was working at an auction house, because it, at auction, everything is public in a way that, that it isn't when you're working at a gallery. For instance, when I was an intern, I got to carry a tiny little painting by Gerard Dow of a sleeping puppy that was coming up for sale in a in a town car with a security guard to someone's house to look at it before the auction to see if, if this person wanted to bid on it. And in the end, that painting was sold to a private collector who has since left it to the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston. So this painting that, that I loved- Oh, how cool. Experience with is now there for me to look at anytime I want. So that was quite a special one. That is so cool. I was supposed to intern at Christie's before the pandemic ruined everything. And so different path, one which I loved, but in case anyone at Christie's is listening, I am an excellent intern. And so I'm happy to carry <laughs> any pieces of art, large or small, in yep. town cars to anybody's house as yep. and when you may need. Molly, this has been such a fantastic and just like such a uh, just really like blowing a window open, I think, into a world that not a lot of people see. The last thing I always like to ask people on the podcast is what advice you might have for somebody of any age, maybe in their 20s, just starting out, maybe they're in their 50s or 60s, who wants yeah. to move into the art world. What advice would you give them? Where should they start? I would say look at as much as you can. As you mentioned earlier, there's so much that that people don't realize they can go to. So for instance, gallery exhibitions and auction house views are free and open to the public. So go and look at these things. You don't have to buy it just because you're going to these views. Go to art fairs if you you have the opportunity and can get a ticket. I, I appreciate that that's going to be an expense, but you know there, there are ways to get student tickets sometimes through universities. Again, just to look at as much as you can. And if you find a gallery whose work you really like, it doesn't hurt to email someone who works there, one of the specialists, and say, you know, can I can I buy you coffee and ask you about your job? As long as it's not an incredibly busy period, I think people are really happy to talk about something they're passionate about with someone else who's equally interested. And I will always say yes, unless I'm I'm completely, you know, busy with, with fair preparation and then, you know, just just say yes another time. And the more people you meet in the field, the more likely it is that you're going to hear about internship opportunities or job openings, you know, but through networking. So I would just say, go to as many exhibitions as you can and, and talk to people about what it is that appeals to you. That is such great advice. And I think the idea of an informational coffee is applicable to any career that you want to do. Yeah. I have gotten so many leads and connections that way. And I just think most people are really happy to talk about their work, especially if they like what they do. So it never hurts to ask. The worst thing that would happen is they wouldn't respond. So. Exactly. 
That is amazing advice. Molly, you have been a superstar and thank you so much. Baby, dog, everything. Like this has been awesome. (laughs) That is life. That is life. And I love it all. Thank you so much for coming on. Last thing, where can people find more about you or what you do online? I would say go to simondickinson.com, which is our gallery website, and you can find my contact details and those of the other directors and specialists, as well as a little more about the sort of works we handle and where and when we'll be exhibiting. So please don't hesitate to come and see us on German Street. Amazing. Molly, thank you. Have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you so much, Nina. Thank you so much for listening to Quit Your Day Job. We are a Zcast production and want to send huge thanks to the whole Zibby Books team for their support. Find me on Instagram at Alicia F. Miranda. I would love to hear what you thought about the episode, future jobs you want me to profile, or the burning questions you think I should ask my upcoming guests. And if you decide to quit your day job, let me know. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.